Pride Institute is an LGBTQ-specific treatment center for substance use disorder and addiction. Pride was first opened in 1986 as a direct response to the HIV-AIDS pandemic. We provide care to adults 18-plus in residential and outpatient settings. I'm Luke. And I'm Kaylee. And together, we are the co-hosts of the Proud Voices podcast for Pride Institute. Hello, everyone. We're here today with Dwayne. Dwayne, thanks so much for joining us today. So I'll just start this off like I start every other uh, episode off. But Dwayne, what led you to Pride's Doors? Um, Pride was familiar to me. Um, I went to Pride first back in 2016. And I only had experience with one other treatment center. And, um, you know, I was living in the Whittier neighborhood um, last year, and I knew that um, I needed to change everything about what I was doing. And um, going into New Way Residential was not going to be the most supportive thing for me. I needed to change the complete area of where I was choosing to recover. And when you say Whittier, just really quick, um, can you describe where that's at? Yeah, between uptown and downtown. Um, and so there really wasn't a question for me. Um, I knew that I felt comfortable um, going to Pride and it was a safe place for me. Well, so when you say you needed to completely change everything you were doing, what were the things that you were doing that you needed to change? Loaded question. <laughs> that, is, that is a loaded question. Where do we begin? Where do we begin? Um, well, it wasn't too hard for me to change everything, things, um, I built up my life with things that I thought I needed. Um, you know, I was filling a God-sized hole with stuff that I thought was gonna make me happy. Um, you know, a lot of my addictive habits really rose to the surface back in 2011 when I came out to my parents. And I felt that first rejection and abandonment. And um, ever since then, um, I feel like I've been trying to numb that feeling with like alcohol or codependent behaviors or sexual compulsion and um, getting all the way to becoming addicted to meth, um, you know, it's kind of spiraled out of control. And finally, back in February of last year, um, I was raided by the police. Ironically, on Valentine's Day. Not it's romantic. Not yeah. romantic at all. That was, that was a rude awakening at 9 a.m. Um, and so that was kind of my higher powers way of intervening in my life because I was not ready to go to treatment on my own. I literally needed someone or something to take my apartment away from me um, to force me out of that situation. Um, my boyfriend broke up with me the weekend prior. Um, at that point, I didn't have a job. My job was making artwork air quotes, um, AKA selling drugs. And, um, you know, the only people who really showed up for me were my parents. Um, and, you know, it was either go to treatment or be homeless. And I've tried homelessness before, and that's not a cute look on me. Um, and so I kind of started the process to get into treatment. And, um, like, most addicts, we try to think that we can get this like final, like last hurrah. And um, I did that. And um, March 8th of last year, um, 
I did too much uh, GHB, walked into the shower, and blacked out. Um, and it's one of those like higher power moments that like needed to happen. And in some way today, I can be grateful that it happened. Um, because if I wasn't in my parents' house, if I was at home in my apartment, I likely would have died. Um, and the fact that my mom found me, um, to me, broke down all those barriers I built up of resentment um, that made it possible for me to say to her, it doesn't matter the fact that you didn't show up for me or you rejected me um, years ago. Today, you showed up for me when I needed you. And today, that's all that matters to me. Um, and my mom drove me to treatment this time. Um, it was hard, but she has been probably the biggest supporter of my recovery. And, um, you know, it made it possible for me to really shut out all the noise um, and just all the, the outside influences that I was really listening to and really focus on the fact that, like, if my mom loves me, I really don't care what anybody else thinks because um, I was really focusing on trying to please everybody else. And now I can just focus on taking care of me. That's incredible. I heard a couple of really interesting things. So first, the thing I want to highlight is you had mentioned a God-sized hole, which um, I just, that struck me. What did you mean by that? I think growing up, um, I grew up in a very conservative I say Christian because that's probably like the easiest way for people to digest what my family's religious denomination was. Um, household, it was just very conservative. And um, really what it was is I lacked a spiritual connection. And um, I grew up with a set of ideas, spirituality that didn't support me being who I was and really supported me hating who I was. Um, and therefore there was this like lack of like self-love and lack of support. And um, really all I wanted was my parents to embrace me and to tell me that I was good enough, that I didn't have to hide who I was um, and I could just be myself. And when I didn't kind of get that validation, um, there was sort of like this emptiness in me. And, you know, up until that point, um, I was filling it with um, overeating. I was filling it with codependency. Um, I was starting to fill it with alcohol. Um, you know, I was going out to the bars maybe three or four nights a week. Um, and it was kind of spiraling out of control to the point that, you know, my mom recognized that there was something going on with me. Um, and, you know, when that, when I felt that rejection, you know, everything after that, every time I got rejected or abandoned um, or felt less than, it really went back to that original rejection or abandonment. And I didn't realize that that is what, what was going on until this round of sobriety. Um, you know, and until I addressed that sort of original 
you know, hurt every time after that, that I got rejected or abandoned or felt hurt, it was just gonna feel just as worse. Um, and so, you know, I tried filling that emptiness with food. I tried filling it with shopping. I tried to fill it with sex, you know, but they say it's like one is too many, a thousand is never enough. Like there wasn't any amount of like sex that could make me feel good about myself. There wasn't any amount of like food that could make me feel good about myself. It's ironic that I am a recovery meth addict because towards the end, I was overeating at the same rate that I was like using meth. And so I really wasn't one of those people that was like emaciated and like looking like a skeletor. Like I was at the same, I pretty much wasn't losing weight. I was like maintaining my weight, um, which made it difficult when I did go to Pride and you take away one addictive habit and the other one is still present. Um, but that's like a whole different story. Yeah. I, I'm really proud of you because I think you had mentioned basically you didn't see the signs until now. And I think that's something that's so common because hindsight really is when you start to figure out like how things work and, and the way you tick. Um, I'm also interested in and, and really proud of you for the growth that it seems you've had with your parents because that's really, really difficult, um, especially for this community um, because you know, when we grow up, we look at our parents as this godlike figure. And then when we become adults, we realize they're just humans and complex in their own. So I think it's really powerful that you're able to forge a relationship with your mom. Yeah, it was really good for me to, I guess, when I moved in with them for a couple of weeks while I was waiting to get into Pride, um, I had quite a bit of conversations with her. Um, and it's odd that we sort of forget that like when we grow that we seem to think that other people in our life also don't have the capacity to grow and when talking with my mom um she has been doing a lot of work on herself and um her and my dad have been reflecting you know and i come from a large family i'm like number five of nine children so Classic middle child syndrome. Yeah. I wear it as a badge of honor. It's I'm not proud of it. I have, I, have, I have to unlearn that. At least <laughs> there's seven middle children in that family. <laughs> yeah. Um, but you know, she's talked with me um, multiple times about how she sees now that um, she didn't notice like a lot of the stuff that was going on. I mean, and how could she? You know, she was doing the best she could to try to take care of us. And, you know, there was a lot of abuse that happened in my family when I was younger um, that they didn't know about until, you know, it was too late. Um, and thankfully, uh, you know, I wasn't one of those siblings that did get abused. Um, and, you know... I think as my siblings have gotten older and have had kids and they kind of see how hard it is, they've been able to kind of have those conversations and kind of like show compassion and empathy for my parents that like, yeah, it's hard. It wasn't like an easy job. And, um, you know, it's not easy trying to budget for 
feeding a family of 11 when you literally have like so much. And, um, you know, I, for the most part, I had a good childhood. Like there's really nothing that I can look back on and say, you know, that was awful that happened. Mm -hmm. You know, there was just events that happened and, you know, we all just did the best we could. You know, and I've had siblings of mine that have, you know, made a sort of amends to me that said that, you know, they didn't show up the way that they probably should have and they're sorry and they, you know, they support me now. And, you know, that's all I can really ask for. Mm-hmm. You know, I just want people in my life now. Yeah. I think that's so beautiful and that really just speaks to how big your heart is, is that you're not resenting any of these people who really weren't there for you. I mean, you, you were alone in that apartment when it got raided and, um, you know, no one was there for you until after that happened, essentially, is what I'm hearing. And so um, that's just amazing that you're able to to embrace these people once again and, and love them, even though, you know, they you felt abandoned by them at one point in your life. Um, I wanted to backtrack and you mentioned a couple of times about your um, use and tied in with sexual compulsive behavior. Would you be willing to talk a little bit more about that? That's a huge theme that we're seeing and I just want to know your experience with it. Yeah, so um, for me, um, when I started to become more sexually active, um, I should probably disclose that um, I've always been like an overweight kid. Um, I was about to make a joke and it was gonna be a self-deprecating one. And we don't do that around We don't, or, we don't we do, don't I, had do to ca- I had to catch myself. Like after going through the Emily program, like they, they, they cut that habit out of me and so I had to like- Good for you, Queen. Yeah, I had to stop that. So anybody listening, <laughs> we, don't, we don't cut ourselves down. Anyways, um, so I've always, felt that someone wouldn't want to get to know me for me unless I led with sex. Like you would you would be interested in me if I was really good at sex and I could get you to stay around long enough that you would get to know my personality and then you would see that there was all these good qualities about me and because I didn't believe that I was good enough on my own. And so there was already this um, core belief that was instilled in me that, like, I am not enough. And when I've done a lot of the, you know, the 12-step work, um, you know, a lot of my fears, um, if you boil it down, it's like, I'm not good enough and I'll never measure up to my own standards. Um, And so sex comes in as a way to say, I am good enough and let me show you how good enough I am because, you know, this person's going to validate me by saying that they want me, mm-hmm. you know, they could have been with anyone else, but they chose to be with me. And at least for this moment, I can feel desired or sexy or whatever else. Um, and, you know, just like drugs, it's like this rush of a high. And, you know, I got into a relationship with someone who, you know, made me feel special. Um, But at the same time, I felt like I had to always be available for sex. Like it was, you know, when they were off a conference call, like I had to be ready. And um, while in that relationship, 
um, I got introduced to meth. And, um, you know, I found something that made me feel attractive. I got some, found something that made me be able to have sex for longer and, you know, made me feel invincible. Um, and I already had this coping skill that made me feel like I could walk into a room and I had all this confidence. And so just like one toe, like hand in hand. Um, and so, you know, it's like, why would I give that up? Um, and it, it's been hard to kind of like, you know, remove those two things from each other. Um, in this last year, I made an active decision I mean, COVID's made it real easy to not hook up, real easy. <laughs> um, but, you know, I definitely made it past the first year without, you know, hooking up with anybody because for so long, all I valued myself was as a sexual object. And people just looked at me as something that they valued me as for my body. And I just decided that, like, I am more than my body. Like, I want to be wanted for more than just my physical looks. And I've been valued as, you know, something, you know, like like a fetish almost. Like it, it bothers me that people will like fetishize me. Um, you know, and just over the last weekend, I almost got intimidated by intimacy because I have a hard time accepting affection from someone from sort of appreciating the body I'm in right now because it doesn't match with how I feel inside because if I don't love the body I'm in, like, I can't receive it, anything from you. And it's been hard because, you know, it's not that I didn't know that sobriety was going to add on some weight, but like I said earlier, when I put down meth, my addiction to food, like, ran rampant. And I put down my addiction to sex, so that was not present. Um, and I gained 100 pounds in, like, the first seven months. And, you know, I almost, like, resented my sobriety because it's like, how, how could I lose control of this? Um, you know, I wish that I could have the body that, like, my addiction gave me. And it was really hard for me to admit that to myself, that that's where my mind was at and it was a process to get back to like radically loving myself and knowing that like I will get to a place where I feel comfortable in the skin I'm in and knowing that like I don't have to punish myself like sobriety gave me my health back and like and I'm not in danger of dying anymore that's incredible and what everything you just said and I think the clarity at which you're able to reflect on your circumstances is also another thing you probably wouldn't have had I mean and I, don't, I guess I don't know that for sure but I um, probably wouldn't have had that a year ago and that is something that can't be taught that is something that you just have to endure and you have to do the work which you have it's like the things you give up in order to like be an addiction, be in your addiction, you don't realize what you're giving up. Um, and yeah, it sucks to add on some weight. It, it really does. Like, it, yeah, it sucked to, to um, 
get into sobriety and realize that majority of my teeth had to go because I neglected my oral health. But you know what's great being sober is I was able to make the effort to get into a dentist and I had a great dentist that removed all the teeth that was causing an infection, cleared all, all that. I, I was able to endure all of that without payments. Ibuprofen, but that's that's not really a payment. It's not really a payment. Um, and now I like have upper and lower impartials, and people really don't notice, and I don't like hear a difference in my voice, and I really don't like pay attention to it. It's like I don't punish myself for what I did, either. You know, um, you know it happened. I can't go back and change it, and we're just going to move forward. Yeah, moving forward is the name of the game and recovery, right? Don't look back, don't punish yourself, like you said, for the things you can't change and just move forward. Uh, I really appreciate you coming in and taking the time to share with us today. I think you had a lot of great insight, um, especially because you you know, you know, just hit your year. Uh, it was March 13th, right? Because so congratulations, just hit the year. So I think you can really reflect in a way some of um, the people that we've had on this podcast, you know, that have had longer time time in recovery, um, you know, things that they just forget while they're going on and moving forward and looking ahead. So thanks so much for being here today. Uh, we really appreciate how vulnerable you were with us um, and you have a beautiful story. So keep on loving yourself. Yep, thank you for having me. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Proud Voices. You can find us where you find all your favorite podcasts. Don't forget to follow and subscribe. We'll see you next time.